Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avinu Machinu, our Father and King, Father, we worship you, praise you, and adore you. I thank you for this holy Shabbat that you have set aside for us to gather and worship in your presence. I thank you for the command to have a holy convocation. Father, I pray that as we move forward in our service, as the message begins, that you will speak, that it be your voice heard, your words received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose, and that you will breathe new life into our hearts and our lives. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. Uh, this week we're in Parsha Vayera. Parsha Vayera begins with Genesis 18.1, and it continues the narrative of the life of uh, Abraham, uh, of uh, uh, our father Abraham. And what's really interesting as we look through this, um, and what I really want to focus on today uh, as we look through the narrative of, of Abraham, is that I think Abraham is kind of a prime example of almost any of us in the body of Messiah. Because as we look at the life of Abraham, what we realize is Abraham has lots of high points and lots of low points. Abraham is both a man of hope and faith and a man of failure, phenomenal failure, over and over and over again. The same man that the Lord said, Lech lecha, get up and go, leave the household of your father and the land of your fathers and go to a land that you've never known, and I will tell you where to stop and to rest and I will give this land unto you. The same man that heard those words and got up and left without ever questioning it or thinking twice about it is the same man that with both the Egyptians and the Philistines was scared to death that he would be killed because of the beauty of his wife and, that the, and allowed his wife to be taken and in essence be married to the king of Egypt and the king of the Philistines. The Philistines, we read about this week, this particular situation. Um, he is the same person who allowed, uh, the, uh, for lack of a better way of wording, the temptation with Hagar rather than trusting in God's faithfulness to f- uh, fulfill and perform his promises um, and faithfulness to Abraham. He uh, decided to go with the temptation and the easy route of trying to produce God's promises on his own with Hagar uh, and developed, uh, and Ishmael comes in the development of the people from Ishmael and ultimately Esau is joining to Ishmael's lineage and the, uh, the, the problems that we still have today uh, in the delineation of the bloodline of Ishmael and Isaac. Um, all of these things over and over in a number of other situations that we see the, the, the reality of who Abraham really is as a human. Because I think a lot of times we look at Abraham and we almost put him on this pedestal of if only we could be like Abraham. Right? If only we could have the faith of Abraham, if only we could have the passion of Abraham, if only we could have the willingness to serve God and to follow God like Abraham. But then we come across situations like allowing his wife to be married to some other guy because he was afraid he was going to get killed. Keep in mind, <laughs> keep in mind Sarah was pushing 90 when he was afraid... I'm just saying, apparently she had really good genes because she was pushing 90, and not only did Abraham think she was hot and was going to get killed for her, but the king of the Philistines thought she was hot and was okay with killing him if need be to take her. All right? Pushing 90, that's some good genes. Um, and I don't mean J-E-A-N-S. 
Uh, that's some good genes that she's got there. But uh, Abraham was scared to death. He, this man of faith and trust, had so many times that we read about in his narrative from Genesis, so many opportunities to just outright, without the leading of God, trust in God's faithfulness and protection, and yet failed miserably over and over again. All right, we read later in this Parsha, the, the, uh, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, the Akedot Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. And we read about how quick and willing Abraham was when the Lord said, get up and take your son, your only son, to a mountain that I will direct you to and offer him as a sacrifice unto me. How quickly he was like, all right, cool, let's do this and see what happens. Perfectly aware of this was the son of promise, perfectly aware of that no matter what, God was either going to provide a sacrifice and substitution, which ultimately he does, or that he was going to resurrect Isaac from the dead. There was no doubt in his mind that Isaac was coming back down that mountain from him, with him. But that same man of faith and hope is the man that often fails at the simplest of tasks when it comes to faith and hope. Um, and so I want to, as we look into the, the Parsha, as we look into the scriptures today, I want that to be kind of in the back of your mind uh, as a filter as we move through this, because the reality is, is I think that that, as I said earlier, is a prime example of you and me, a prime example of a believer in Messiah. We are Abraham. We far too often walk faithfully in hope, while at the same time willing to fall faithfully without hope over and over and over again. And I think a lot of times, uh, all the time when we fall, it's because we allow the enemy's temptation, the enemy to try and misdirect our hope and our faith in the Lord away from what the Lord wants to do. So in uh, Genesis 18, verse 1, it says, Then Adonai appeared to him, to Abraham at Mamre's large trees, while he was sitting in the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes to see, suddenly three men were standing right by him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed down to the ground. And then he said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, please do not pass from your servant. Uh, please let a little water be brought so you can wash your feet and make yourselves comfortable under the tree and let me bring a bit of bread so that you can refresh yourselves and you can pass on since you have passed by your servant. They said, do just as you have said. Now, how about you? I read this and the next few verses are kind of humorous to me because Abraham goes, look, let me just uh, do a couple of good things for you. Let me bring some water for you to wash your feet and, uh, and some bread for you to eat and, and you can go on your way. It'll all be okay. And they went, okay, cool. We'll do that. Right? And then all of a sudden he runs off. They're like, make it quick. We don't have all day. We've got cities to destroy. Make it quick. And so Abraham runs back to the tent and he goes to, to Sarah and he says, listen, get some, uh, some flour and knead some flour together and make some bread. And then he runs out to the herds and he grabs an, an ox. I mean, it's not like he went and got a little, he grabs a stinking ox. And he brings the ox back to his herdsman and says, hey, quickly break this thing down, kill it, uh, kill it, break it down, and, and, and cook the meat and bring the meat forward. They say make it quick, and he goes through what's got to be the longest process in the world, right? I cannot possibly imagine taking an ox from the field and putting it on a plate in any sort of a swift amount of time. Just the slaughter and breaking down of the meat is going to take hours upon hours, not to mention having to then go about the process of cooking it. Uh, anybody ever needed bread? I know, uh, I know Donna makes challah quite a bit for us. Uh, when you're needing bread, that's not a quick process, right? You need it, and then you let it rest, and you need it, and you let it rest. And, and he's like, you know, they said, make it quick. He's like, sure, I'll take all the time in the world, and you know, sometime next week you'll get to go forward and do whatever you have in store. 
One of the things I think is most interesting here about Abraham and about the narrative that we're reading, and I think really about the, uh, the character and nature of God um, in this, this first little bit of the Parsha, is that Abraham quickly, as he's sitting in the tent, quickly got up and rushed out and knew who was standing before him. There's no doubt in his mind. Now, you've got to understand, it wasn't uncommon for people to randomly go strolling through and, you know, as they were on their journeys traveling around. So odds are Abraham saw quite a few people run in front of, walk in front of his tent on their journey, yet there was something about these three men, and in particular one of them, that drew his attention. Um, I believe that, and as we look through the, 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 the narrative here, what we see over and over again is this description of Adonai speaking to him. Uh, not just some angel, but of Adonai speaking to him, of him recognizing that one of the individuals is the Lord himself standing before him. And I think the reason that he ran out so quickly wasn't because, hey, there's some three random dudes out here. Uh, I want to go meet them and find out who they are. But I think the reason he ran out was because just a few chapters before this, four chapters before this to be exact, he runs into another character that we read about. Anybody remember who that was right after he saves Lot's hide the first time? Malchitzedek, right? Or however people say it in English, I never can get that right. Malchitzedek, uh, uh, this individual who is this messianic-like figure that I personally believe, as we look through the narrative, is in fact Messiah pre-incarnate, is in fact Yeshua pre-incarnate. It is what Colossians 1.15 describes Yeshua as, the visible image of the invisible God. Uh, and uh, as we see this with Malchitzedek, we look at it and we realize his name, Malchitzedek, king of righteousness, or the righteous king. There's only one righteous king, only one king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, or in Hebrew, Shalom, the king of the city of peace, the same, uh, potentially the same location, the old name becomes Yerushalayim, uh, the city of peace, or particularly the provision of peace. Uh, and as we look at all of this, and we move through this whole thing, we realize that this very likely was God himself robed in flesh, the pre-incarnate Yeshua. And then we come to Genesis 18, and we see Abraham rushing out, and he meets with him as though this is God himself, because Abraham saw him. Abraham recognized him. Abraham knew him as the same individual he met with before. This is my hypothesis. You can take it. You can leave it. I'm telling you what I think here, and you can run with it. Um, I believe that this was God himself robed in, in, in human form, standing before Abraham. This was the pre-incarnate Yeshua. We know John 1 tells us that Yeshua didn't just suddenly pop into God's mind as a backup plan, but that all things were created through him, that Yeshua has always existed and will always exist. All right? Colossians, as I said, 1.15 says he's a visible image of the invisible God. In the Greek, it's a little closer akin to the visible image of the otherwise invisible God. Um, and so if we see a visible image of him, whether it's the Shekinah upon Mount Sinai or it's uh, uh, the, the back of the body of God that Moses sees when he's standing in the cleft of the rock or it's the individual standing person to person in front of Abraham, this is the visible image of the invisible God and in some way or another is, I believe, the pre-incarnate Messiah standing before him. And so as he runs out, he has this huge encounter with him and we realize uh, as Right after they eat and break bread and everything goes on, they get ready to leave, or at least two of the angels get ready to leave to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and the Lord says right afterwards in, uh, 
Verse 17 says, When Adonai said, Should I keep a secret from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham will most certainly become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have made myself known to him so that he will, be, he will command his sons and his household after him to keep the way of Adonai by doing righteousness and justice, so that Adonai may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Then Adonai said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is very grievous indeed. I want to go down now and see if they deserve destruction, as its outcry has come to me. And if not, I will follow. So Adonai says, should I keep this from Abraham? And then immediately speaks to Abraham. And the narration here doesn't make it seem as though there's some heavenly voice coming down from the clouds, but rather that Abraham is speaking to him face to face as a man speaks to a man, as is spoken about Moses later on. Um, and then we read about them leaving. And one of the things, this is another one of those situations, this is Abraham's heart, the humility and the willingness to hope upon hope out of Abraham's heart. As the Lord says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. He says, but Lord, would you really slaughter all of the righteous because of the unrighteous? What if there were just 50 there, Lord? What if there were just 50 righteous men in, in, in Sodom? And the Lord says, for 50, I would, I would, uh, I would, I would spare them, spare the whole city. And then, obviously, Abraham is the uh, uh, forefather of, of all of us wonderful Jews because the next thing he does is try to negotiate. Uh, and he goes, what if there were 50? Okay, cool, we got you. What if there were 40? 30? 20? Can we go 20? What about 10? If there were just 10, Lord? I know about Sodom and Gomorrah. I know how miserable. If they were just 10 there, would you save them? The Lord said, for just 10, I would save them. Then Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Uh, so clearly, it wasn't even 10. I don't even think that Lot and his family would have counted into that. The scripture tells us the only reason that Lot was saved was because of Abraham. That was it. It wasn't because there was anything great about Lot. It was that it, he was Abraham's nephew. And so as, uh, as all of this goes on, we see in this, enca this encounter here, uh, Abraham's heart for intercession, which we then see later on in Moses, his heart for intercession. Every time Israel fell, Moses fell on his face. Aaron would fall on, their, on his face before the Lord and intercede and cry out on behalf of of Israel. And I think this is one of those great signs of Abraham as that man that we put on that pedestal, the man that in some ways rightfully deserves to be on that pedestal, because he is a great man who is such a man of hope and an example of faith and fervency before the Lord. But it's the other side of him that I think we often take way too much example from in our own lives. It's those times when he's afraid that uh, the Lord won't provide the son he's promised to him. And so he tries to do it on his own. It's the times when he's afraid that the Lord can't protect him against the Egyptian king and the Philistine king. And so he tries to, to make his own way and then ultimately almost causes both to die, almost causes their entire peoples to be wiped out, all because of Abraham's lack of faith in those moments. And I think it's important for us to understand, yes, we put him on these pedestals. We put Moses on these pedestals. Moses was the same way. Over and over again, we see these high points of Moses' faith, and then we see these low points of Moses' faith, or the lack thereof, over and over again. And I think a lot of times we look at the, the great men of the Bible, and we go, if only I could be like that. If only I could be like that. If only I could be Solomon with the wisdom. What about Solomon with all the wives and concubines and all the other mess-ups he made? If only I could be like David. David was a man after God's own heart. If only I could be like David. What about David with Bathsheba? If only I could be like Joshua. If only I could be like Caleb. They both kind of jacked it all up once you get to the book of Joshua. If only I could be like Peter. Peter jacked it up pretty good too. If only I could be like Paul. 
Paul messed it up a couple of times here and there too. We look at these great men of faith as though they've got some genetic key and marker that we could only wish to attain. The problem is we have the same genetic keys and markers, which causes us to fall prey to sin. Those genetic keys and markers changed after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. It changed in a way that because of the, the sins of our fathers being passed down through generation to generation, to the third and fourth generation, and continuing every time we add third and fourth generations to it, we have that now, that, that, that willingness, that almost genetic code that, that makes way for us to fall and to fail. But thankfully, as we see with the binding of Isaac and the Akedah and the narrative there, when we look at that whole passage, what we realize is, I fervently believe it wasn't a test for Abraham. All right, I don't think it all was a test for Abraham. I think it was a test for Isaac. And for those that haven't heard this before, uh, Isaac wasn't the little boy we think about in Sunday school sermons. All right, he wasn't a 10, 12-year-old kid. Isaac was somewhere between his late 20, or early 20s and, and early uh, mid-30s. He was a grown man. His father was 100 years older than him. There was no way that Abraham was tying him down to anything without Isaac willingly let it happen. Isaac was fully alert of what was going on, hence the reason why on the way up the mountain, he goes, look, pops, I see we got the wood and we got the fire, but what about the thing we're going to burn? Where's the sacrifice? All right? And Abraham says what? He says, God will provide, and the Hebrew is very specific, God will provide himself a lamb. Not God will provide a lamb for himself. Not God will make provision as some uh, translations say, God will make provision for a sacrifice for himself. It says God will provide himself a lamb. And then we call him, as Abraham named the area, we call him Adonai Yireh, the God of provision, the God who provides. But Abraham was speaking of a specific provision. He wasn't just speaking of providing food and nourishment and financial benefit and households and houses over our head and children and so on. He was speaking of a specific provision. He was speaking, I think, prophetically of the provision that Isaac's sacrifice was to be a prophetic purpose or prophetic pointing to. Isaac's sacrifice was a prophetic reality of what would later come as a sacrifice of Yeshua. Think about the comparisons. Isaac was a miraculous birth. Sarah wasn't supposed to have children. She's 90-some-odd years old. She's well beyond 90 years old when she gives birth. She's well beyond childbearing age, even for people that live 300 years, some of them. Well beyond it. Yet miraculously, here's a child. Interestingly, uh, when uh, we read about in this week's Parsha, about the Lord coming back and visiting with her, it specifically says, and God came down and met with her, visited Sarah, and she became pregnant. It's not to say it was divine incarnation as it was Yeshua, but it's very specific and important that we see these connections, these correlations. God opened her womb at that point and allowed her to become pregnant when her and Abraham did what her and Abraham did. Um, kids in the room, we'll leave it at that. And uh, as things move on, we move through and we see that there's all these correlations. You've got the miraculous birth. You've got the visitation from God himself, as we did with Miriam and the birth of Yeshua. You have uh, even down to some finite things like going up the mountain, by the way, the same exact mountain that Yeshua was sacrificed on. Mount Moriah, where Abraham uh, was to sacrifice Isaac, is Mount Moriah that we know of today to be the lower part mount, uh, the, the Temple Mount, and the upper part, the Mount of Olives. It's all one mountain with two kind of plateaus, if you would, two kind of peaks in it. Uh, it's one mountain called Mount Moriah, the overarching 
mountain is called Mount Moriah. This is the very place that Isaac was to be sacrificed and the very place that the lamb whom God himself provided was sacrificed. Very same place. Yeshua carried uh, part of the cross on his back as he went up the mountain to, to be hung on it. Guess what Isaac carried on his back up the mountain? The wood for the sacrifice. So many correlations over and over again. He was the one and only son. Yeshua was the one and only son. He was the son of promise, the seed of promise. Yeshua was the son of promise, the seed of promise. Over and over and over and over we see these correlations. I think to some degree, even Isaac asking, where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice? Is it akin to Yeshua in the garden before his sacrifice, saying, Lord, if, it, if it's your will, let this pass away from me. But not my will, yours be done. The correlations are unreal. And the faithfulness of Abraham and Isaac to follow through with this. This is one of those high points. Think about it. Isaac knows what's about to happen and willingly lets it go on. My dad's 20 years older than me. Exact, almost exactly 20 years older than me. There's no chance in the world my dad is doing tying me down to anything unless he either knocks me out or kills me first. It's just not going to happen. There's going to be a fight that ensues. There is going to be some drag out. It is not going to happen. The only way this worked at a hundred year difference not 20, 100 years, as if Isaac was also a man of faith. And unlike Abraham and Jacob, we don't see that defining moment called out in Scripture in which they became a man of faith. With Abraham, we see it with Lech Lecha, get up and go, and he goes. With Jacob, we see it in his encounter on the way back to, uh, to Esau and his homeland, on the way back to the land of Canaan. We see that encounter with God where he definitively makes a decision that the God of his forefathers is going to be his God also. With Isaac, we don't see that moment quite as pervasive. But I believe that the akedot yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, I believe that is his defining moment of faith. And that's why we don't have to read about it all over again happening. But we look at these men and we see, and even with Isaac, Isaac was a great man of faith, yet very swiftly fell, from, uh, fell down to faith. If we look, Isaac does the exact same thing that his father does. He's afraid that he's going to get killed over his wife being too beautiful. And so he says, oh, it's my sister. Have at her. Sin to the father. You don't believe me, look at Scripture and see how many times it comes about. David, all kinds of mess. Solomon does the same thing. Sins of the father over and over again. It's a, a, a biblical precedent that we need to understand. But as we move forward to Hebrews chapter 11, what's often uh, called the, the chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, right out the gate, verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of realities not seen. For by it the elders received condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen did not come from anything visible. It says faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of realities not seen. You want to talk about faith and hope. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, David, Elijah, Elisha, Solomon. All of these are men considered righteous, not because of anything they did in their own lifetime, but because of the hope they had in what would come. Hope in things unseen. They had no doubt in their mind that the salvation of their people would in fact come. As the word of God has always said, they didn't know when, 
And they knew they likely wouldn't experience it. You and I are considered as believers of Messiah saved. We are considered deemed righteous, not because of anything that we physically do, but because of the hope and faith we have in something that we look back at and see has happened. And that thing converges upon Yeshua. Our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their righteousness was deemed faithful because of their hope in what was to come in Messiah. And our righteousness is looking back at what has come in Messiah. And as we move through this chapter, we see about Abel's offering over Cain, and we see about Enoch, and we see about Noah, or Noah. And verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he migrated to the land of promise as if it were for him, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was awaiting, he was waiting for the city that has foundation, whose architect is a builder and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive when she was barren and past the age, since, the, since she considered the one who had made the promise to be faithful. So from one and him as good as, de, as dead were fathered offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as uncountable as the sand on the seashore. These all died in faith without receiving the things promised. In other words, they died having faith in the coming of Messiah without having yet received the salvation of Messiah. But they saw them and welcomed them from afar, and they confessed that they were strangers and sojourners on earth. They were not a part of a kingdom here on earth, but instead sojourners here, but part of a kingdom greater than the kingdom on earth. For those who say such things make it clear and they are seeking a homeland. If indeed they had been thinking about where they had come from, they would have had opportunity to return. Where do we come from? We are created from the words of God and we have opportunity to return. And for us as believers, that opportunity to return is in the one through whom those words were spoken. Messiah Yeshua, the Lamb that God has provided. But as it is, they yearn for a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Yes, he who had received the promises was offering up his one and only son, the one about whom it was said, though Isaac's offspring, uh, through Isaac, uh, Isaac offspring shall be named for you. He reasoned that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And in a sense, he did receive him back from there. Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith and his hope, as Romans reminds us of. He was counted righteous because of his faith and hope in things unseen. You and I stand here today having not physically, personally, and individually witnessed the sacrifice and atonement of Yeshua, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Yeshua, the ascension of Yeshua, but our salvation, our righteousness is found in our hope and our faith in what has come and what we believe has come in things unseen. And much like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, David, Solomon, we are not awaiting a kingdom here on earth, but instead a heavenly kingdom in which God himself is our king, our only king. We as Messiah's bride are awaiting our groom to return, and we hope in great faithfulness for the day that we believe is soon. And every generation predicating us, reading the book of Revelation or the Gospels or any other part of the Scriptures, has looked at the Bible and said, this is definitely our day. We can see these prophecies being revealed now. And we live in a generation where that is perhaps more true than ever before. 
We are heirs, joint heirs, citizens of a greater kingdom, not a kingdom founded here on earth, not a kingdom that's, that's contained within the dirts of any part of this world, but rather members of a kingdom that Israel, the land of Israel, is a foreshadowing of. We stand here today waiting for the day when the Mount of Olives split because the feet of our Messiah has returned, landed on the mountain, split the mountain apart. We wait for the day in which the new heaven, new Jerusalem will descend upon the earth and we will spend all eternity in his kingdom. We wait for a day that we are longing for and hoping for because we know the truth of the things that we've looked back upon and believed to be fervently true. And much like our forefathers Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are looking forward or we're looking forward to the coming of Mashiach. We are looking back to and we are both in hope and faithfulness in what the Lord can and will do when his kingdom is truly here on earth for all eternity. And so when we look back at the men like Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we go, if only I could be a man of faith like that. Let us remember that unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have the power and the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we have the ability in a very literal sense, we have the ability to be those great men of hope and faith without the failures. Because the person we are to emulate is Messiah Yeshua who walks spotlessly, perfectly, with no failure. And Yeshua said even greater things than he has done, we can do. And that's not just speaking of the miraculous and the signs and wonders and the work of God in other people's lives through us. But that's speaking of when we walk in faith and hopefulness and what he can and is doing in our lives and the fruit that is produced from that. That fruit doesn't come out of failures. That fruit comes out of walking in his righteousness and atonement. When people see us, do they see the good Abraham or the bad Abraham? Do they see the Abraham of hope who was willing to leave his father's homeland, who was willing to take his only son, his one and only son up the mountain with no doubt in his mind that he was coming back down? Or when they look at us, do they see the Abraham who was afraid he was going to be killed because of Sarah? The Abraham that was too afraid to leave his father's household entirely behind and brought Lot with him when God said, leave everything behind. The Abraham who fell to uh, the temptation of trying to produce God's promises on his own. So we have a great man here to look up to, this great man of Abraham. But it's important that we understand that his life is a juxtaposition that in this day and age, we can't afford to want. We can't afford to continue to fall prey to. His life of juxtaposition is one of hope and failure, one of faith and failure. And you and I have to live on the side of hope and faith at all times. Because failure is not going to further the kingdom of God. And what you and I have been placed here in this day and age to do is to further the kingdom of God. To go therefore into all nations, making Tamudim disciples, and immersing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't come from people seeing our lives as a total failure. I worked in restaurants for a long time. And I can tell you there's a huge difference between when people see God in you and when people don't. It's not to say I'm perfect by any means, but I've experienced both. I've experienced walking God's faithfulness the way we should and seeing people's lives around me changed because of it. 
And I've seen people look at my life and go, there's no way that I want anything to do with that God if that's what it looks like. And I'm telling you right now, most of the world around us thinks about the body of Messiah, and that's the thought they think of. Because we're divided, we're spiteful, we're vindictive, we're judgmental, we're angry. Believers are always angry. Why are we always angry? Happier those whose God is Adonai. Why are we always angry? Today is the day to decide which side of that juxtaposition we want to walk in. Whether we want to be counted as one of the Hebrews 11 type of hope and faith fathers of the world around us. Or if we want to be like these great men who also had tremendous failure in their life over and over and over again. But I'm telling you right now, the kingdom of God is not going to wait on us. The kingdom of God is not going to wait on us. The Lord wants nothing more than to use us for his good and his purposes. But he's also not going to waste time on us if we're just going to continue to fall and fall and fall and fall. That doesn't mean he walks away from us. That doesn't mean he doesn't want our repentance. But if me, as Rabbi David, is going to choose a life of sin over and over and over again, why in the world would the Lord waste time trying to use me to speak into others' lives when they look in my life in this day and age and all they see is the failure when he can use somebody else where all they see is the light of God. And the same goes for you. The Lord wants his light to permeate who you are so that he can change the world around us through you, through me. I think we do in fact have a great man to look to and the man of Abraham but there's key parts of his life that we can't afford to continue to follow suit behind. That this world cannot afford for the bride of Messiah to emulate. Let us walk in the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh. When the Lord says, Lechacha, get up and go, let us go. When the Lord says, lay it all down, let us lay it all down. In order to follow me, you've got to be willing to hate your father, your mother, your sister. Pick up your cross and follow me. It's a life of sacrifice. Sometimes it's a life of pain and anguish. The Lord never promised things would be easy and happy going as believers, but instead Yeshua said the world would hate you because of me. When Abraham fell in sin, the king of Egypt didn't hate him. The king of the Philistines didn't hate him. They took his stuff. They took his wife. They didn't care about him. But you better believe when the kings that attacked Lot's family in Sodom, when the kings that, that attacked that whole area saw Abraham rushing after them, Abraham rushing in the power and presence of God, they were scared to death. And there is a much greater army behind you and me than there was behind Abraham. And there is a much greater, great much greater kingdom and king and general that is leading our fight than Abraham could have ever fathomed. And it's time we decide which line, which side of the line drawn in the sand we want to walk in. Avu Achimim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is forgiving. That you are a God who is merciful and that you are a God who wants nothing more than to use people like us.
who have in fact over the years fallen prey to sin to show your glory and your might through our lives in what you have now made us through the power and presence of your Ruach HaKodesh and the sacrifice and atonement of Messiah Yeshua. Father, we thank you that you are ever faithful and that in your faithfulness, we have the ability to be faithful. And Father, I pray that you build up within us a desire and a passion to know you more, to walk more fervently in your ways, and to recognize that our hope and our faith is found in you, that our salvation is found in you, and our future is only found in you. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen.